0: The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello and welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today's discussion is with Professor Sunia Luther, who is a professor of psychology at Arizona State University and a professor emerita at Columbia University's Teachers College, where I had the privilege of working with her as my first mentor in my first lab in graduate school. Sunia did decades of resilience research. And while she started working with youth in poverty and children in families affected by mental illness, she encountered another vulnerability teenagers in affluent communities going to high achieving schools. This is not something that people understand is an actual vulnerability that puts kids at risk. It does. And we're not having this conversation to scare anyone. This is really a conversation to help parents buffer the effects of that risk and what we can do about what's going on right now with these achievement stresses. I wanted to start by having you explain what resilience looks like. Mm
1: -hmm. Resilience is essentially doing well, functioning well, in the face of adversity or stress of, of any kind. Uh, so basically, if you're talking about children and adolescents, it's uh, uh, that they're functioning well in terms of their schoolwork, getting on with peers, with teachers, and uh, you know,
0: not experiencing mental health difficulties. So that's basically what resilience means. If we're thinking about resilience, I think a lot of people make assumptions that you're either born with resilience or you have certain qualities that are going to make it easier for you. But can you build resilience or is it related to temperament?
1: I should clarify, Lisa, that resilience is not a personality trait. So it's not something we're making them be in terms of more persevering Mm -hmm. or more stick-to-it or more sturdy. What we're talking about is helping bring the child assets things that will help the child flourish and thrive in general. So it's not a personality trait that we're looking, or it's not an attribute, a particular attribute of the child that we're trying to foster. What we're trying to do is help the child basically deal with the adversity, buffer the child in the best way as possible, and
0: that in turn will help the child function well across these critical domains that I mentioned. We're not talking about a personality trait. So a lot of times we think a person either is or isn't resilient. Can we go over that a little bit more so that we're not blaming children for not being able to be resilient?
1: I will say that unequivocally, all of us who study the researchers in child development, who study resilience in childhood, say, without exception, resilience is not a personality trait and we should not be saying a child is or is not resilient or even trying to put a grade or a number on that. It makes no sense. Resilience is doing well. And how you decide to define doing well also varies by the kind of adversity uh, that the child is experiencing. So for example, in a lot of our work in high achieving schools, issues of anxiety and depression and substance use tend to be very important. So to the degree we can help kids in these settings sort of stay away from or not experience serious symptoms in these uh, contexts at the same time, continue their academic performance. That is what then helps us put them in that category of kids who are doing relatively well, but it's still
0: not called resilient kids. They're they're showing resilient adaptation. Mm. I'd actually like to try and define adversity because like you said, if we're talking about kids in high-achieving schools, adversity is going to be different than if we're talking about children living in poverty. So I do think there seems to be a value judgment on what is adversity.
1: Okay, so adversity means something that basically stresses most people out. In the field, in our work on resilience, the way risk or adversity is defined is that it is statistically linked with more negative outcomes. Then, so in other words, people, who, kids who experience that particular life condition are statistically more likely than others who don't experience it to show negative adjustment outcomes. So it's really mathematically, statistically, what are the odds? So that's the first answer. Now, the second answer is you can define adversity in terms of various life conditions ranging from parents' socioeconomic status to mental illness in the family and stress major life events that are negative. Going back to the first one that I mentioned, mm-hmm. you notice I said socioeconomic status. I did not say poverty.
0: I did. Mm.
1: Yeah. And so <laughs> what I have to share with you is in a, a recent report by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine in July, what they put forth is that among the groups of kids who are considered at risk in terms of social demographics, high-achieving schools have made that list.
0: That's incredible.
1: So we're talking and there was there's another there's another report by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation last year. So he said first is poverty in terms of adverse sort of environments, exposure to poverty, exposure to trauma, exposure to discrimination, number four, exposure to excessive pressures to achieve. So that was the first report. But with having the National Academy say one more time, again, in the same group, in the same breath, we're talking about kids exposed to poverty, recent immigrants, kids in foster care, in that same category of kids who experience risks that most other kids don't. Because of their social demographic life circumstances, this term has. Kids in high achieving schools are very much part of this uh, group now. What defines kids in high achieving schools? These are schools where you have basically good standardized test scores and advanced offerings, AP courses and honors courses and rich extracurricular offerings and Uh, kids heading, the graduates heading off to good colleges. So uh, really it is the good schools. These generally tend to serve families from relatively affluent backgrounds. Not to say that they're all affluent. So we're not saying that affluence makes it risky. Mm. You with me? Yep. Well, we're not saying that if your parents are rich, it's a problem. We're saying that if you are in a school that is high achieving, where most of the kids, so the school, at the school level,
0: the affluence tends to be high. That is a risk factor. I think people consider high achieving schools. By the way, my daughter goes to a high achieving school, both my daughters go to a high achieving school. And so I think about this all the time because my first lab experience, even my, my first research was with you. So, okay. so even making this decision was, was tricky. So why are high achieving schools becoming this mm-hmm. risk factor? Yeah. A couple of things,
1: Elisa. So one of them is this ongoing, incessant drumbeat of do more, accomplish more, climb higher. You know, we wrote this paper uh, a few years ago that's called I Can, Therefore I Must. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that seems to be the credo by which these children live, our children live, as do we parents a lot of the time. So now people will ask me, okay, Professor Luther, Where is this pressure coming from? And my answer is, where is it not coming from?
0: Mm -hmm. You know,
1: people are very quick to blame parents and say, oh, you're a helicopter and you're a snowplow and Mm -hmm. you're whatnot, or you're entitled and selfish or self-focused. It's not just the parents. It's the parents. It's the teachers who start tracking kids by middle school onwards. You're you're headed to the top. They want the schools want the uh, students to distinguish themselves. Coaches want the students to, you know, achieve uh, the distinctions and state level games and so on real estate prices, real estate prices vary with achievement. Tesco's mm-hmm. uh, of schools, sports, even with something like sports, which used to be fun, you right. the whole community turning out to watch. There's, there's pressure on that front too. So it's okay. a long answer to a short
0: question. Where's the pressure coming from? The short answer is where is it not coming from? Mm-hmm. Warby Parker is Well, you see me with all of my glasses. Warby Parker is committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores, offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and contact lenses. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal of creating boutique quality eyewear at revolutionary price points. I wear so many different Warby Parker eyeglasses because I have to wear glasses anytime I'm not sleeping and I love them. Try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. You order five pairs of glasses to try on at home for free for five days. There's no obligation to buy. It ships for free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. So it's just so convenient. Don't let your FSA or HSA dollars go to waste. Put them to good use on Warby Parker prescription glasses, prescription sunglasses, contact lenses, and eye exams. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash humans. And let me tell you, I really cannot commit to one look. So I have, I mean, I have more than five (laughs) Um, and I love all of them. And whatever your personality feels like, that moment, what you're wearing, how your face is feeling, looking, they've got a look for everything. My sunglasses, my Everyday glasses, they are all Warby Parker. Here is a topic that's not super fun to talk about, but really, really important if somebody relies on you for financial support. So, whether that's your child or an aging parent, you need life insurance. Life insurance can give you peace of mind that if something happens to you, your loved ones will have a financial cushion, pay for things like rent, mortgage payments loans, education costs, and everyday expenses. Having coverage through your job may not be enough. Most people need as much as 10 times more to properly provide for their families. Typically, life insurance gets more expensive as you age. So it is really smart to get a policy sooner rather than later. And this is just one of those things once you have kids that you need to think about and Policy Genius makes it easier. So head to policygenius.com. Answer a few questions about yourself and in minutes you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and you can compare personalized quotes and find your best price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Their licensed experts will help you understand your options and apply for a policy. And the thing is, the Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. So you can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you every step of the way until you are covered. Policy Genius doesn't add on extra fees or sell your info to third parties. They have thousands of five-star reviews across Google and Trustpilot, which is kind of a big deal because the best way to know that something is legit is to find out from so many real clients that it's been helpful and successful. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Dot com. Okay. So you know how free trials kind of renew without your consent? That's because it's a business scam to get you and keep you. And that is so not transparent and totally unnecessary. And there is actually an app that can take control of these subscriptions called Truebill. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need, want, or simply forget about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill because essentially companies make subscriptions hard to cancel and the hassle that it takes to cancel it is just stops being worth it or you start and you're just like, oh, forget it, I'll do it next time and then months go by. And you've spent money that you didn't need to. Truebill makes it incredibly simple. You just link your accounts to Truebill and they cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions anytime so you don't have to. Truebill has over 2 million users and helps save them over $100 million. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at truebill.com slash humans. Go right now to truebill.com slash humans. It could save you thousands of dollars in a year. And these are just those small things that are both time-saving and money-saving and just make things easier. So go to truebill.com slash humans. Now I'm gonna take a break to talk about the COVID vaccine. Parents, this is the moment that you've been waiting for. It's finally here. Everyone ages five years and older is now eligible to get a COVID-19 vaccine. So what does that mean? It means that they can get the same protection as the rest of us at a dose that is made just for them. The vaccine is safe and it's effective at preventing serious illness from COVID-19. And it's finally available. It's finally our children's turn. Find their COVID-19 vaccine at vaccines.gov today. That's vaccines.gov. If we're not going to change society, right, mm-hmm. we're not going to change expectations mm-hmm. without a, a major overhaul, which will come over time, perhaps. Yeah. But in in absence of that, what can parents do who still want to give their children the opportunities that, you know, as you said, I can, therefore I must. Mm-hmm. There is this sense of I can provide my child with this extraordinary education. Mm-hmm. What can parents do? Should they not send their kids to those high achieving schools? Or is there a way to send them to those high achieving schools and sort of offer the negative effects of being in that kind of pressure cooker?
1: Right. So believe it or not, there actually has the suggestion has been put forth rather tentatively, but still has been put forth by researchers, is maybe we should not be putting kids in a uniformly high-achieving group, whether that's in a classroom or in a school, uh-huh. because what that does is it tends to facilitate not just constant comparisons with each other, but you're always in danger of feeling less than because you're competing with everybody who's outstanding. Mm-hmm. You see, so there there has been the suggestion that maybe it's not such a great idea to try and have the best of the best all sitting in the same room because of this issue of social comparisons. So your question of, so what do we do with this? I don't think the answer, realistically speaking, I don't think the answer is going to be, okay, don't send your child to a school that has, you know, uh, got a good record. I think the answer really has to do with, or it's going to be, helping children to have a sense and keep that sense of self-worth and and belief in themselves that does not rest on the splendor of their accomplishments.
0: God, that is so beautifully said.
1: Our job as parents, Aliza, is to help our children feel that unconditional sense of being Seen and loved for the human beings there are. So what I would tell my kids as they were growing up, and hopefully they internalize this then, as now is, look, do your damnedest, Try, try as hard as you can, work as hard as you can. Working hard is a good thing, but you will get an education, you will get into some college. Don't worry about that. So taking off that sense of pressure, saying, my goodness, what is Mama Jack gonna say if I'm not a starter on the team or if I'm in the B band or any one of those things? To the degree our children can feel like my feeling of being loved by my mother is so steadfast that yes, I will try and get my SAT score up or get into that IV or the other. But if it doesn't happen, you know, life will go on. Of course, as parents, we all want the best that we can possibly get for our children. So do I want it for them? Yes. The difference is that if they don't make that cut, whatever that cut is, I still adore them. I don't know if you remember, we created a measure on perceived parent values. I for do. Kids when, uh early back in the early 2000s. And basically we asked kids to rank order the top three values right. art that their parents would have for them. Three were around achievements, like you know, getting excellent grades and uh, making a lot of money and so on. And three were around decency and kindness and that you, that you respect others, that you're kind to others. And basically the findings from that was kids who felt that their parents were overly invested in achievements were much more unhappy and that, you know, your kids have to pick three. So I tested this question on my kids. I think (laughs) Nick was in the eighth grade at the time. Nina must have been, well, three years behind. And all three of mine were not achievements. How that is an achievement, right? I think my kids would say, aside from my values for them, is that I really am very, very committed to the work I do. I feel the deep passion and deep commitment to the work I do.
0: And they watch me working very, very hard. We hear a lot of talk in articles, in conversations, in classes, in books that really blame parents. And it's such an important message that you were talking about in the context of, I believe it was, drug-addicted mothers in New Haven.
1: Yeah, in, in, in methadone maintenance. And here's the interesting thing, Elisa, that the negative stereotypes that you have about low-income moms uh, in, in serious poverty, oh, they're indolent or they're lazy or they're irresponsible. We have now a parallel set of negative stereotypes about, you know, mothers in yep. these high-achieving settings. Oh, they're preoccupied or they're overly ambitious and neglectful. Or, they're just disparaging words. And my response to, in both cases, saying, you know, nothing ever got better by calling people names. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and as as you said, I will say the same thing for myself, for you, as I will say for that mother, all those mothers with whom I worked in in, in the psychotherapy groups as we're running groups or professional mothers. Now, all of us, we love our kids. Do we make mistakes? Of course we do. But I have this emblazoned in my mind is that but for the grace
0: of God. That's right. That's right. Being a parent is humbling. It is the most humbling. So, but, but having
1: said that, I'm sorry I'm interrupting no, you. No, please there. do.
0: Having said that, there are <laughs> lots of
1: other people who are mothers who are still very judgmental toward other mothers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you see people even writing about, oh, these are helicopter moms and these are snow plowing moms. And I always think to myself, what did you do when your child was in need? What did you do? Mm -hmm. Did you get that SAT tutor for your kid? Mm -hmm. So what baffles me is
0: how quick we are to judge each other. Even naming parents, tiger moms or snowplow parents or helicopter parents, or, you know, there's actually no space anymore to be a moderate person in the world of being a mother or a parent, you are either you care so much that you get labeled as too much or Mm -hmm. you don't care enough, so you're neglectful.
1: There is another factor that probably plays in, and that is fear. You know, when we say mothers want to do the best, parents want to do. The other thing is that it's terrifying to think that that could be your child who's cutting herself or who's, you know, heading toward addiction, if not addicted already by the ninth grade or 11th grade. So what happens? It's so primal, the fear that comes up Mm. in a mother's heart when she hears that her child might be in danger. The natural reaction for many people is what? Denial. Yeah, not my kid. Yeah. This couldn't be happening to my child. And then with that denial comes to say, comes that general feeling of distancing yourself from 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 the whole phenomenon. That's not me. That's them. So this calling calling names. I'm not saying it comes from an unkind place necessarily, but I will say, number one, it's not borne out in research. I, we don't have any data that say, oh, this helicoptering or snow plowing is what is making our house kids miserable. Mm-hmm. So it, it is not born out in data. And the other thing I'll say is that there is a lot of fearfulness, and rightly so, among contemporary parents. For the well being of their kids, because the numbers are skyrocketing of the serious anxiety, depression, and substance use, and so on.
0: It's really confusing too because there's information out there. I struggle with this all the time. How do you help support families? How do you help support mothers? Mm-hmm. And also, how do you let mothers know that they're doing it just great? Like, how can you do both without implying that? They they need to change or fix something.
1: Okay, so Lisa, just as we know from resilience research over decades that children's resilience rests fundamentally on their relationships and feeling loved, secure in that love. Mm. It's the same thing for mothers. If you want diverse groups of at-risk kids to do well, the single most important mm-hmm. thing to do is ensure the well-being of their moms. And how do you do? Why moms? Because moms are usually the primary caregivers. Right. If dads are That's the case for them too. And how do you ensure mom's mental health or well-being? By making sure that mom feels nourished and loved and replenished. It's exactly the same thing. Mm.
0: Going back to these high-pressured schools, because I think there is a little bit of anxiety about anxiety now. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And so I wonder if you could help us understand when it is the kind of stress that is going to be good stress or okay stress or mm-hmm. stress that builds your muscles and when it is, in fact, toxic or somewhere in between. When when it's at these high-achieving schools, so very specifically, not the kinds of things that we know are toxic to children, but just the idea of explaining what stresses are positive, what are kind of neutral or tolerable and what becomes toxic in the context of these high achieving schools?
1: So uh, this is just like the analogy of what I said to you, what I said to my kids when they were in, in school is, or even to this day, work hard and work very hard. But if you're ever getting to a point of feeling exhausted, like you can't face the day, Leave alone, God forbid. Where you are seriously depressed or getting, you know, hooked on drugs or alcohol, you stop well before that point. Now, as moms, you know your kids. I know mine. Mm -hmm. I can tell when they're working hard, and I can tell when they're working hard to a point that is not healthy.
0: And did you start having those conversations early? Very early. Yeah, very early. How early? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very early. And I remember when my
1: Son was, I told you, he's the older when mm-hmm. He was applying to colleges. And I, that's when I said to him, I said, sweetheart, my love, I went to Delhi University. It's not even on the map over here. <laughs> You'll get an education. You know, mm-hmm. if you really care about what you want to do in life, you've got a good foundation here. You've got parents who will support you. And he said, mom, you're the only person, parent in this whole community that I <laughs> think would say that. So, yeah, maybe I was out of step in saying what I did, but I truthfully did believe that now, and I still believe it, is that if your child does have a good work ethic and a talent and an aptitude and a commitment passion for something, he or she or they will get there. Basically, the moderation saying, I love you, this is a great set of grades, but it doesn't get to the point where you're saying, She's holding, you know, you're chewing your nails and she's chewing her nails saying, what is mom's reaction going to be to my grades? You follow what I'm saying? So we do, it's like, you know, you hear, but mom shouldn't be carrying on about the daughter's appearance and so on. So does that mean you don't tell your daughter, my my sweetheart, you look beautiful today? Of course not. You can just tell your daughter she looks beautiful. The problem is, if you're saying, "Well, what are you doing about your weight? And what are you doing about your complexion?" Mm-hmm. And I don't know about that hair, <laughs> and you know, so on and so forth. So, in moderation, and when it's real, of course, you must appreciate what your child has, whatever strengths your child has. You must do that. Just don't carry it to a point where you say, "Oh my God, if I'm not this, mom won't appreciate me."
0: It's such that is such a uh, balanced thing to say because no matter how many times I might try to protect. A mother that I'm working with or a friend or a sister, in my own head, I get very extreme and terrified just like any other mom does. And then I find myself thinking, I wonder if my daughter's going to grow up and go, she never really thought I was beautiful. And I think it all the time. I just, it just, I never wanted her, God forbid, she thought I valued that.
1: Goodness, why not? I mean, aesthetic things and people are to be valued
0: well also she's my daughter so of course my you know we see our children I, I i don't even know what she looks like in the real world right i only know what i what i, I, I see let me go back to what i said earlier
1: the, the the difficulty is when a child's sense of self-worth rests on the splendor of their accomplishments that's when it becomes problematic what i don't think the difficulties of either of my children or yours or any mother feels that if i cannot accomplish this mm mm-hmm. Then somehow I'm going to lose my mother's love, or admiration, or respect, and, with, and, and especially when these are like looks are not under your control, mm-hmm. that much, right? right so you got right. what you have, but even something like raise, if you you don't get into that college or uh, make that kind of money—that do you see where I'm the distinction? I'm yes, making? it's a
0: beautiful, clear distinction that I think we we need. Yeah,
1: <laughs> okay. it's like people saying, "Well, you know, how much love is too much love? There isn't such a thing as too much love." There's a thing that not enough limit setting, but there's mm. no such thing as too much love. Mm-hmm. The most important thing is that good relationship with the caregiver, the primary caregiver, mm-hmm. who's usually the mother, which means mom needs to be happy and loved. Mm-hmm. If mom is happy and loved, many things fall into place. If mom is anxious and stressed and saying, should I be a conscious or an unconscious parent? Yeah, yeah. Or, How am I doing on that front? All of that jeopardizes, whether it's limit setting or communication or... Praising or loving, all of that's jeopardized. Ooh. So let's let's look at what science says. What science says is, above all, first, most important, mom needs to be feeling healthy in her in her heart and soul. She needs to be feeling loved and whole and supported.
0: How rare to be a researcher and to be, I mean, a real person, a person, yes, yeah, um, and a mother and. Yeah, you know, yeah.
1: It's, so when I do my talks, when I do all this research in these high achieving schools, you know, I go and present the findings, and I talk to parents, and that's exactly what I say: is I'm a researcher, but I'm a mother, and I speak to you as both, and I know that feeling of being humbled and afraid, ugh. and terrified, and confused, and perplexed. Where do I go with this? So, it is important for parents to know that, and also important for them to know be discerning consumers of the information that's out there Mm -hmm. and understanding why research is so important but if you think that by enhancing the time of play in elementary school is going to keep kids from cutting themselves in high
0: school right
1: i don't see the research saying that Mm -hmm. so what i what i really want us to understand is like the pressures at the level of the community the neighborhood the parents the peers the child him or herself the day, the school school day is uh, set up. Don't be thinking that just because there's a simple correlation, this thing is linked to well-being when they're in elementary school, that is going to solve these huge problems that we're seeing when they get to middle and high school in terms of mental health problems.
0: So what are some of the things to think about going into middle school and high school that can help support mental health and well-being? I'll go back to, go back right, to right. That,
1: you know, sounding like a, a broken record, you know, but back to what resilience respects that single most important thing is having that close, loving relationship with at least one parent. There's another part to that, Aliza, which is in this aphorism, which is bad is stronger than good, which means that the effects of feeling criticized or, or nagged at or disliked by your parent are way stronger than the effects of praise. In other words, ugly words have a much stronger effect than the absence of positive ones or the presence of. So the Mm. most important thing is to ensure that your child is not feeling alienated or excessively criticized by you. Following that, do they feel that reassuring
0: sense of being loved? These are the two most important things. So if anybody is stressing... Mm -hmm or feeling like, oh, I don't have this close connection, or I've been focused on all of these other things, Mm -hmm. there's always, I would love for you to address repair and creating a closer relationship as your children get older, that there's no point of no return.
1: There's never a point of no return as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, that's why I said I'm going back to middle school, and the study that I'm telling you about it is treacherous for yet another reason, because your kids look at you like they don't like you. And that hurts. Mm, yeah, and a yeah. child who's been so <laughs> adoring and so, with like the world's mm. sun rises and sets with my mother, looks, with a genuine, looks at you with a genuine dislike. Mm-hmm. What is a mother to do? So this is where I go back to again. That is why it's so essential for us to have that community of supportive other mothers with us so that when you feel that deep sense of just huge hurt and the everyday things of the everyday decisions, the tightrope I was talking about, that you have your community of sister mothers, you know, whatever you want to call them, loving other mothers to whom you go and say, All right, I just had it, I'm spent, I'm defeated. Help. They're doing what children do at that age. Mm -hmm. And even though it is horrible, It's a horrible thing that they do. But we're all capable of doing horrible things. We've all done that. It just so happens that those years tend to be years when all kids are much more likely to to say and do mean things, unkind things to their parents. Yes, kids can be mean to their parents.
0: And if a child is mean to you and you're a middle school mom, Mm -hmm. can you give an example of something that you could say? Yeah. So, and I remember what I would say to mine is, hey, listen, I
1: speak to you with respect. You speak to me with respect. That's one example. Mm-hmm. Never say, don't raise your voice at me. I don't know. walk out of the room. So, you know, I have my, kept. I tried to keep my limits. The The harder part for me was that, that sense of what happened to our relationship. Right. Ugh. They come back as decent, mature loving, responsible human beings, if you start when they're little, you just hanged off during this hard time of middle and somewhat high school. And once they're at that young adult stage, uh, most of them will come back.
0: Which you are living with,
1: right? family When he is now 28 and she's 25 and knock on wood, they're a joy and a gift to me. And they were, in their own ways, quite a tribulation trial in, in their town. Uh, middle school, <laughs> in, uh, you know, so we we all go through it. Just, it's about giving each other a real, not phony hope, but real hope based on the
0: data.